a congressional committee that helped win a war and launched a senator into the White House. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Wednesday, May 10th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, author Steve Drummond joins us. We'll talk about his new book on the Truman Committee, Harry Truman at War and as an Investigator. And we'll ask what lessons the success of the committee has to offer today's Washington. Seth Tupper is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll discuss Governor Nome's memoir, Not My First Rodeo. Plus, how stable is the water supply in the Black Hills? And can it sustain growth in the decades ahead? And then publisher Doug Morano and author W. Carter Johnson later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. A few weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to protect access to mefeprestone. That's a medication that can help terminate a pregnancy fewer than 10 weeks along. An anti-abortion rights group is bringing a new case to ban mefeprestone access next week. They'll present to a U.S. Court of Appeals that covers Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. If they win, that case will likely head to the Supreme Court. Well, in light of that news, we welcome Stu Whitney back to our program to talk about his local reporting on mefeprestone access. Stu is an investigative reporter for South Dakota Newswatch and is with me on the phone. Hey, Stu, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it, Lori. So your reporting has been, and this medication is illegal in South Dakota, but it's not illegal in Minnesota. So you found a doctor who is helping South Dakota pregnant patients access this medication. Tell us what you found with this physician. Yeah, it's really kind of interesting because uh, you mentioned the Dobbs decision and sort of sending uh, the question of abortion access and rights back to the states, which sounds simple. But then when you have two states, two border states with uh, dramatically uh, different laws on abortion access, it becomes uh, much more problematic. Um, for South Dakota, South Dakota women, they're finding that uh, they can cross the border into Minnesota. There's a uh, nonprofit organization called Just the Pill that is uh, providing access. Dr. Julie Amion, we talked to, she's the medical director and they allow uh, South Dakota women to come into Minnesota, do a telehealth appointment uh, with a visit physician, uh, get a prescription if they're eligible, and then they return to Minnesota to receive uh, the mail or pills through the mail uh, from the mail order pharmacies. And I think they use mail order pharmacies in California and Michigan. And so they're basically getting the prescription in Minnesota and they are picking up the pills in Minnesota, and then they return to uh, to South Dakota, and uh, most of them at that point would terminate the pregnancy. One of the interesting arguments in the days and weeks ahead is whether or not there will be a ballot initiative on abortion, and, and South Dakota Newswatch has done some polling on this. You have some of that data. Are people supportive of access to the abortion pill in South Dakota, and then how do they feel about people traveling outside the state? What can you tell us? Well, uh, the poll that we did in July of 2022 showed that a majority of respondents, 57%, support allowing legal access to abortion medications in the state, uh, and, and that included 42% who strongly support that access. Uh, ne nearly two-thirds, 65%, said they support having a statewide referendum 
as you mentioned, as you alluded to, uh, that petition effort is ongoing. And so they would like to see that on the ballot in 2024. And then specifically to what we talked about with women crossing the border, uh, 71% of the respondents in our poll said they support uh, permitting South Dakota women to, to leave the state to obtain uh, abortion uh, medication. And 79% oppose criminal penalties uh, for those who help someone procure or obtain uh, abortion, abortion medication. So it's, you know, a, a case, uh, it might be a separate conversation, but it's a, it's a case of some of the general electorate, or at least the people responding to this poll, uh, not being aligned ideologically with some of the uh, laws coming out of the state legislature and peer. Yeah. So um, just the pill in Minnesota, what about West River, South Dakotans? Um, they offer services in other states. Just the pill is uh, offering uh, services in, in Wyoming and Colorado. Uh, there have been uh, South Dakota residents, West River, who have crossed the border on that side of the state. And what they're going to do is uh, you can do the mail order, but also if the uh, at, at to go through the court system and they sort of revert uh, to previous FDA regulations, where you would have to get an in-person consultation or pick up the pills in person. They have mobile clinics uh, where you can meet with a physician in these mobile clinics, and they will be doing that in Minnesota, Wyoming, Colorado as well. So uh, their goal is to maintain and provide uh, reproductive services to women who are in states that do not allow it currently. Yeah. You can find more of Stu Whitney's reporting on this topic at sdnewswatch.org. Stu, thanks for the brief rundown here. We appreciate that. Appreciate it, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Senator Harry Truman was a relative newcomer to Washington when he began assembling a bipartisan team to take on powerful corporate entities in America. Fraud and corruption had taken hold of the Pentagon's dealings with business leaders as the U.S. struggled to prepare for war in the months before the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. Steve Drummond is an award-winning senior editor and executive producer at NPR. His latest book is called The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. Here's my conversation with Steve Drummond. Before Pearl Harbor, as Truman, uh, you know, becomes more prominent in the Senate through this investigative committee, one of the things that struck me about your book was how ill-prepared America was. It was, he said, as if we had learned nothing from World War I, did we really think that there would never be another war? What can you do to put this in context for listeners? Sure. The first investigation of the Truman Committee looked at the construction of army camps. Um, it seems kind of innocuous. Or harm, harm, uh, you know, it seems like kind of a small scale investigation, but the, the nation was building hundreds of army camps around the country. They were spending several billion dollars on this. And when Truman started investigating, it turned out after World War One, the plans to build army camps had been lost or thrown away or something. And it found out that uh, they weren't planning for, oh, maybe we should have uh, a gas station so we can put gas in the trucks. Maybe we should have hard concrete so we can park these heavy tanks on there. 
What the Truman Committee's report said was the army was being run along Civil War lines. They were they were building these army camps and training facilities as if it was still the horse-drawn era. And and Truman's investigation found out that the country would wasting waste had wasted some hundred million dollars on these army camps. And that was just the beginning. You spend some time talking about his Midwestern values and how he's always wrestling with this. Uh, I need to work with the political machine, but I also need to keep my personal integrity intact. How did that help him <laughs> prepare for the work of the Truman Committee? Very much so. Um yeah, throughout his career, Truman struggled with this. He was a politician, and politicians have to make compromises and sometimes deals. And and yet, um, he was also very dedicated from his time in the military in World War One to his time as a county judge in in Missouri to now his time as a senator. He was very devoted to public service. But this kind of uh, struggle served him well on the Truman Committee. He took great efforts to make a bipartisan committee to involve the other senators, including the Republicans on the committee in the decision-making process. And it paid off. Not only did they save the country billions of dollars and probably thousands of lives on the battlefield, um, but in his 32 years as chairman, uh, sorry, in his three years as chairman, the committee put out 32 reports. Every single one of them was unanimous and bipartisan. And that's something I think the Washington of today could stand to learn something from. Right. Um, I want to talk about those lives on the battlefield because one of my favorite stories or anecdotes or scenes from this book is really when he is there for the first time getting shelled um, in France, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. And uh, a sergeant in the group, he he is an officer. He's been elected by the men to be an officer. And a, a sergeant says, let's get out of here. And people start running. And uh, Truman unleashes a tirade of language. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's legendary. Tell, where, where did he learn yeah. all those all those words? <laughs> oh, tr uh, right. Truman had served in the National Guard. And then when, when the United States went to war in World War One, he... Uh, the National Guard unit chose him to be their captain, and he was put in charge of an artillery battery, four cannons and 198 men, I think, to run it. And so in their very first time in combat, the Germans started shelling them. And as you say, one of the sergeants uh, shouts, let's go, and r starts running for the uh, running for the rear. Uh, and Truman stood up, and, and in his teen years working on the railroad, he had learned from railroad workers, uh, as he put it, every foul word in the English language. And so <laughs> Truman stood up and began screaming at his men with all the filthy language at his command. And they kind of sheepishly turned around and came back to do their jobs. And so that was kind of one of his first examples of of him being a leader and him showing that he could command and 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 make people do what he wanted. And you have wonderful excerpts of the letters he wrote to his wife, to his daughter, letters he wrote to himself. And he says to her, I was really just too scared to run. <laughs> <laughs> he, did. he said they didn't know, but his men after that kind of viewed him as a lucky officer. Nobody was killed throughout the war. His his unit only lost one man killed in action, and many of them credited their captain. So this was, of course, uh, stuff that served him well later as a politician. How important were those letters to you? The the oh. original research that you are the original documents. I mean that you that you found. What did you see of the man in those letters that was personal? Oh, my gosh. Um, it's one of the great things about Truman was, one, he was a very devoted husband and a dedicated father. 
and he, whenever he was away from his wife and daughter, he missed them terribly. Uh, many of his letters he would sign, Lonesome Harry. Um, but also, for me as a writer, you can follow him through the war. I can, you can tell not only where he was on any given day, but what was going on in his mind because he sat down that night and wrote his wife a letter about it. And through it, he comes across as kind of the guy who's come down through history, uh, a sometimes hot-tempered guy, but a likable, dedicated person. And, and that really comes through in his letters to his wife. And funny, too. Truman, uh, Truman's kind of a fun guy, and it was a really great pleasure to spend a lot of time you know, going through all these documents. Now, he is the quiet man in the felt hat who shows up at the army camp and sees the waste, sees the fraud, but he also relies on letters coming from American citizens across the country. How important were whistleblowers, essentially, to the Truman Committee's work? Oh, very much so. It was another of the inspiring things in writing this book as I sat in the National Archives reading hundreds, thousands of these letters that people wrote into Truman saying, Dear Senator Truman, you know, something funny is going on down here at the factory, or why don't you investigate, you know, steel production? And several, in two cases, those led to the biggest investigations of the Truman Committee. One was at an airplane factory in Ohio where people writing in saying, hey, they're fudging the inspection. They're shipping bad engines out the door here, and they may be winding up in airplanes being flown by American servicemen. The other was <clears throat> from a steel inspector outside Pittsburgh who was saying the same thing. Hey, they're cutting corners. Bad steel is going out the door here, and it may be ending up in ships or uh, warships that are being built by the United States right now. Who knows? Maybe people are getting killed because of this bad steel. And those were the two investigations that put Truman on the front page of virtually every newspaper in the country, made him kind of a national hero, and directly led to him becoming vice president. You also write through his letters and through the things that he didn't do, his evolving racial views. How important is it for journalists today who are doing this kind of historical work, like writing a book about the Truman Committee, to spend time to really understand um, Truman's not all there as a civil rights advocate in the, in, during this time that you're writing about? Tell us about that. Exactly. Truman grew up in a deeply racist and segregation time and place. Um, uh, and those were the, you know, sort of uh, ideals that he absorbed as a child. Later, as president, he would oversee the integration of the armed forces and the federal government. He would be a strong advocate for civil rights legislation. But as you say, this period of his life finds him in transition. He's still using some of the racial slurs that that were common in his personal language. And yet he's slowly realizing that as a that as a United States Senator, it was his job to serve all the people he represented. Having said that, very early on, the uh, uh, black leaders in the country urged him to investigate the deep racism and discrimination in the military and in defense contracting plants. Truman initially said he would look into it. He kept promising to do so. But by 1944, the Truman Committee had not got around to that. And when he was running for vice president, the Republicans would certainly point that out. You also, I think, my opinion here, have done a lovely job at highlighting the work of women on the committee, highly educated, highly talented women who are regulated to stenography or stenographer or secretary. What was it like for you to sort of search out interviews with their families and get to know uh, who these women were because they haven't been written about before? 
it was clear that there were a lot of really smart women going to work. I mean, no, no one doubts there were a lot of really smart women going to work in Washington in nineteen in nineteen. 40s. Having said that, the workplace at the time, pretty much in in the case of the Truman Committee, relegated them to secretarial work. One of these women, Marion Toomey, had a law degree. She was made a secretary, and eventually her work stood out so much that she was promoted to investigator. She lived to be 100. She died in 2016, just before I started writing this book, and I would have very much loved to speak with her. Having said that, I had wonderful Zoom calls and interviews and conversations with her children, who are, of course, very proud of their mother. And so those were some of the most pleasurable moments of writing the book was sort of bringing to life the stories of these uh, women on the committee and and talking with their descendants and and sort of hearing stories about their parents. Yeah. If you were telling uh, coaching a young journalist how to find that story, how to find that human story, what would you say? Oh, my gosh, it was so many in writing the story. It's easy to go through the documents and see all the policy or I can read the newspaper and the quotes from Truman. But it's these behind the scenes, uh, these little moments and the details that made it possible to tell the characters. Those came out from the personal documents or from digging really hard. I I spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com trying to track down the relatives and descendants of these folks and, and, and to a person. They were very eager and willing to t- share their time with me and tell me about their tell me about their father or their grandfather or grandmother. Wow, that is remarkable. One more question. I know you have a busy day, but when we look at the success of the committee, the bipartisanship, that the the sweeping change, the accountability, the way that they were able to work with the media to get the public to trust them. Uh, have you seen anything like that recently coming out of Washington? What have we learned from the Truman Committee, and what have we not learned um, in Congress, particularly? In congressional investigations from this history? That's a great question. And I think it is the biggest legacy of the Truman Committee is that so many times in the decades since then, whether it was the Kipfauver hearings in the 1950s into organized crime or the Watergate hearings in the 1970s or hearings about the financial crisis after 2008, maybe even the January 6th committee, we've seen that all of these investigative, these bipartisan investigations kind of trace their roots back to the Truman Committee. Have, you know, having said that, and as you well know, the spirit of bipartisanship in Washington today is you know, sometimes seemingly non-existent. And it was a great pleasure to look back to the 1940s to a time when public servants were willing to set aside their partisan or personal goals and and really direct their work towards the public service. And I found that really inspiring. Steve Drummond's book is out now. It's called The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. South Dakotans are most likely familiar with Governor Christy Nome's political origin stories, from the death of her father to her studies at SDSU when she served in Congress and simultaneously sought her bachelor's degree, to the hardworking women in her life who worked and hunted alongside the men. The nation, however, learned more of those stories when Governor Nome spoke at a recent NRA gathering, and readers can learn even more by diving into the pages of her 2022 memoir, It's called Not My First Rodeo. Well, Seth Tupper heads South Dakota Searchlight, and he wrote about Nome and her father online at sdsearchlight.com. We're going to talk about that for today's Dakota Political Junkies conversation. Plus, you cannot sustain community growth without access to an adequate water supply. 
And in Rapid City, that supply is not something to be taken for granted. Seth is with us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in our Rapid City offices. Seth Tupper, welcome back. Thanks for get for stopping by the studio. Hey, Laurie, it's great to be here. And coincidentally, I just came from a press conference that uh, Governor Nome had out here at Reptile Gardens. So, all right, any uh, good stories or anecdotes from anecdotes? Well, anecdotes. They, they anecdotes. There we go. <laughs> They tried to get her to hold the giant snake, and she wouldn't do it. So, um, uh, however, the tourism secretary Jim Hagen, he he did jump right in there and, and had a giant snake wrapped around his his shoulders. So, yeah, uh, the governor did meet some other uh, 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 reptiles and raptors and other things. So, yeah, <laughs> and they announced a, a tourism grant program. There so. we go. That's tour- travel and tourism week, and uh, Governor Nome is not going to say something that uh, she doesn't want to say, and she's not going to do something she doesn't want to do, and that harkens back to how <laughs> she was raised, yeah. although yeah. she did many things she didn't necessarily want to do because of her father. So that's grit in her definition of the word. You wrote about this after um, hearing her NRA speech. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to specifically talk about Governor Nome and what she has told us about her father. Well, to start out, you know, she published her memoir uh, last year, and I was in uh, Mitzi's Books here in uh, Rapid City. I think it was last summer. It's a great little bookstore in downtown Rapid City and uh, was in the South Dakota section and saw her book. And I thought, you know, as a, a journalist who covers the governor, I should I should read this book. And mm. um, I think it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people who don't like Governor Nome or didn't vote for her probably ignored the book and you know, those who, who do like her and voted for her, um, you know, read it through their lens and, um, you know, they, those two sides don't talk to each other often. But when I, when I started to read it, I, I was really uh, kind of amazed. You know, I think a lot of people would expect a political memoir would just be all sort of political puffery. And, you know, certainly there was some of that in there, but it was, it was very, very revealing. And she told a, a lot of uh, deeply personal stories from her childhood probably spent, uh, by my guess, 80 or 90 pages, you know, talking almost exclusively about her, her father, um, who, who happened to die in the, in the 1990s in a farm accident. And so that was on my mind, and I had read the book and had it on my shelf. And then, you know, when she went to the uh, NRA event last month and, and spoke about her father and told the story specifically about him, then I thought, okay, I need to write about this now. Yeah. Um, he is a tough man. He is uh, in pain. He's got a lot of physical problems from the work that he's done in um, in his life as a farmer and rancher. Uh, but he walks fast, and those kids run to keep up. You can't go behind. You got to sprint. If he tells you to get something, you got to sprint full force. Uh, what? And she loves it. She says at some point in the book, "You would think that I wouldn't want to be anywhere near any of this, but that was where the action was." What did you find about how much she wants to learn lessons from him, even if those lessons to some of us would be not, uh, you know, how a father should treat a child, not safe in some ways? Well, that's exactly it right there. You know, I I think a lot of people who grew up in in rural places on farms or ranches, you know, um, recognize the, the type of parenting that's described in the book. And uh, you know, expecting an awful lot from from kids and, and giving them a lot of responsibility and expecting them to do a lot of work at a very young age. And Governor Nome certainly experienced that. But as with everything with her uh, and and the way she's kind of a lightning rod and and the, and and for you know praise and for criticism both. Mm-hmm. You know, there's two different ways to view the stories she tells about the uh, her dad in the book. One being the way she views it, which is uh, you know he made her uh, hardworking, independent, uh, responsible. 
uh, high achieving person. And certainly that's, that's true. Um, but the other way to view it, uh, as some people who've read the book do, is that this guy was also, you know, uh, uh, somebody who was very stubborn, um, who was uh, impatient, sometimes to the point of, of recklessness, and who sometimes put his kids in situations that were kind of dangerous. And uh, I reference a few of those, you know, examples in, in the commentary that I wrote. And she referenced one in her NRA speech where uh, she talked about going uh, elk hunting with her dad and, and being out in the wild somewhere. She said it was in, in the Bighorns in uh, Wyoming and him turning to her and saying, OK, hunt your way back to camp. And I think she said she was nine or ten at the time and her having to do that. And um, she said she found out years later that her mother told her that um, he was at a safe distance the whole time watching her, but apparently also making growling noises and, you know, trying to uh, make her think that a bear was following her. Or something. So it's, you know, again, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of laughter at the NRA and then, you know, about that and appreciation of a father who made his daughter tough. But then, you know, on the other hand, as people watch that, you know, on YouTube, a lot of some other people cringed at that and, yeah. and said, wow, that's it's kind of strange. He puts her behind the wheel of a semi at 12 or 13 and says, drive home. She's never done this before. This could end. And his advice is like, take the corners wide. This could end. Yep. I mean, first of all, <laughs> in some ways, it you know, you have to ask yourself, is, did this happen? I'm not saying she fabricated it, but, you know, it is a childhood memory. And it seems it's one of those stories that, again, if you grew up in South Dakota, you might be like, yep, that's exactly what happens. But somebody who grew up in New York City might doubt that. This could end horrifically. This could end in terrible tragedy. But she makes the semi, um, she makes it home. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think people uh, who didn't grow up in rural areas have a tough time believing it. This is how I learned to drive. Uh, luckily, it wasn't in a semi, but, you know, when I yeah. was 13, my brother threw me the keys when we were walking out the door and said, you're driving. <laughs> you know? Take the wheel. And yeah. so, um, you know, it, a lot easier to handle a car than a semi. But, but yeah, and, and there were the story, the book is, is just full of stories like that. And uh, uh, there's another one that was really striking to me where uh, her, her dad, whose name was Ron Arnold, mm -hmm. uh, instructed her and, and uh, her brother to, um, you know, get an ornery cow into the barn yeah. uh, or maybe it was out of the barn I don't remember which but anyway they were supposed to move this cow and it wouldn't it wouldn't cooperate and they came back to their father a couple times we just can't do it and, and the way she tells it in the book he he grew, lost his temper and ran over to the cow and 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 put a headlock on it and started punching it in the nose and then the cow got him pinned down to the ground and they had to jump in and get the cow's attention and rescue him and again okay that's you know there's one way to view that story is you know this guy was rough and tough and everything, but another way is, wow, that, you know, that's, that's some pretty um, reckless behavior. Yeah. Um, she says they, uh, he gives her boots to the backside. She says at one point her mother probably kept them alive. Um, I don't read in the book uh, a true reckoning or, I mean, when she talks about how she parents, you can hear the difference in how she talks to her kids, of course. But there doesn't seem to be a moment where she says, I wanted to do things differently. She takes the positive lessons out of everything. My favorite one is because it does remind me of my dad is if, he, if you're working with him and he needs a tool, you're supposed to somehow anticipate what he needs before he needs it. And I, w I won't right. do the voice, but my <laughs> brothers and sisters have a voice. Where if you would say, Dad, you'd be like, what? And he would just like shout it back at you and you would jump three feet in the air. Now, I maybe have a more nuanced um, 
um, adult perspective of my dad's behavior, which is in some ways it's funny and it taught us things and in other ways, um, you know, is an unnecessary <laughs> way to deal with right. your children and probably indicated something else was going on in his life. There is, this man is under an incredible amount of pressure to, to stay yeah. economically viable um, on the farm. Yeah, you can you can and re- probably yeah. you know experienced some really tough times in the eighties as mm-hmm. a lot of farmers did I'm sure uh, during the farming crisis and foreclosures happening all around and and so yeah and 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 that probably you know came out in, in some of his uh, some of his uh, behavior but you, you mentioned you know kind of when you grow up and you think back to your parents and you consider um, what was good what was bad and what do I want to emulate and what do I want to do differently yeah. that's that's kind of what's interesting about it you mentioned she seems to take the approach that it's kind of a dual approach where in the book she there there are parts where she seems to recognize these were sort of the 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 bad things about my dad's character or the not so good things and she seems to recognize that that she's inherited a lot of those traits but um she seems to basically embrace all those traits as you know well that's what made me who i am and i'm i'm running with that and i'm going forward and and, and it's uh, her role of, of government that's how she sees uh, you know, she uses this uh, the strict father mentality and and how it's good for you if someone does not come and solve your problems for you, and that is how a government should be run, um, like a strict parent in some ways. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, um, you know, just today at this press conference, uh, you know, when when uh, Secretary of Tourism Jim Hagan was introducing her, and when others were talking about her. There was mention of, you know, that um, uh, she left our decisions to us and she mm-hmm. encouraged, you know, independence uh, during the pandemic. And, and that was good for tourism to be open. And yeah, that, that really permeates the way she governs, the way uh, her politics, um, personal responsibility, which was obviously, you know, deeply, deeply ingrained in her uh, with her by her experiences with her father. Yeah. So fascinating. I did reach out to the governor's office. Um, and asked uh, for an interview just about not my first rodeo. I have not heard back from them. But before I let you go, Seth, I want to make sure I talk about another uh, piece of commentary that you have on um, South Dakota Searchlight, which is about water and Rapid City and just how much you've been covering this for a long time. And there have been big changes in the time, um, in in a short time of coverage. Tell us an update and a summary of that, if you would. Yeah, when I moved out here in 2014 and worked for the Rapid City Journal, one of the first stories I actually covered was the dedication of a, a gauging station on Rapid Creek uh, that had been uh, uh, really important um, in measuring the, the height to the flood in 1972, and they I think they rebuilt or refurbished this gauging station. But anyway, uh, a lot of dignitaries gave speeches, including the then mayor, uh, Sam Quaker, and in his speech, I just remember him saying that, you know, and I had the tape of it still of him saying that, uh, you know, unlike a lot of cities in the West, Rapid City doesn't have a water problem and we've got plenty of water for 100,000 more people or whatever, whatever it was he said at the time. And I thought as a new resident of Rapid City, well, that's good. Check that off the list. You know, no <laughs> water problems here. Uh, fast forward about five years and uh, the West Dakota Water Development District, which is a publicly elected board that covers uh, you know, Rapid City and the surrounding region, uh, they uh, worked with some uh, team at South Dakota Mines to do a study on the water needs in the area. And that study said that, well, yeah, there's plenty of water, but if we were in a prolonged period of drought, um, actually we, we could be facing a water shortage, mm-hmm. that there, there's plenty of water uh, in normal conditions, but not in a prolonged drought. And so 
that got a lot of people's attention and sparked an effort to um, form a nonprofit. Um, some people are leading that effort here in Rapid City and, and work to perhaps get a, a water pipeline from the Missouri River to here. But the update was there was a, a hydrology conference out here in Rapid City recently where uh, a retired um, U.S. Geological Survey employee, Mark Anderson, um, gave an update on aquifers, uh, which are the source of all the creeks that rise up uh, from springs and run out of the Black Hills. And, and you know, he basically said that, you know, back in the early 2000s, he looked up the data and uh, kind of unnoticed by most people all around the Black Hills, the levels of wells dropped uh, pretty precipitously. Hmm. And the moral that he took from that was, you know, if we think we're going to count on groundwater, which is really the ultimate source of, you know, Rapid Creek and Pactola, Pactola Reservoir and everything out here, uh, we'll be sorely mistaken if we think that's going to, um, you know, carry us forward 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. Yeah. Well, you can read that at SouthDakotaSearchlight.com. Seth Tupper here for today's Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Yesterday, we introduced you to South Dakota publisher Doug Morano. He publishes horror and crime fiction at his house, Bad Hand Books. It was much more than a conversation about the anthology, The Hideous Book of Hidden Horrors. It was a talk about fear, the human attraction to violence, and censorship. Here's the second part of our conversation. Right. So Josh Rubin, who is a, a director and a writer who has had great success in horror film for the last few years with Werewolves Within and Scare Me, um, was kind enough to write the, the introduction for this book. And he hits it right on the, on the nose when he says, these are, these are little catastrophes that we can survive in safety. Yeah. And it lets us, it's like, why do we ride a roller coaster? Um, why do we feel that little feeling when we're in a high place? where it might be fun to, to jump. Not that I'm advocating for that, but we all have that little, uh, little bit of thirst for what if something bad happened? Uh, and this allows us to do it in complete safety and to feel a little bit rebellious while we're doing it. The human experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who is in this anthology that you think is, is noteworthy for listeners to say, like, hey, pick this up because you're going to see this author and this author. Sure. Give me a few highlights. Not to make, you're not playing favorites, just... Yeah, broadly speaking. <laughs> right. I, I can't I can't play favorites, but um, some of the authors that uh, listeners might have heard of are Zoya Stage, who wrote uh, the, the best-selling book, Baby Teeth. Uh, her first short story ever publishes in this book. Mm-hmm. It's called What's Missing, and it's a quiet little story about um, what happens when our relationships uh, perhaps get a little bit dull and the things that we do to uh, spice them up, we'll say. Uh, there's Josh Mallerman, who wrote uh, the novel Bird Box, which was uh, adapted into a, a Netflix film starring Sandra Bullock. He has a, a story in here called Dungeon Punchinello, which is really about the limits of optimism in a, in a horrific situation. Mm-hmm. So really getting to the heart of what you and I have been talking about. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a meta commentary on the function of horror in our lives, um, and it's completely masterful. Uh, Haley Piper has a, a wonderful novelette in this collection. Um, and she is, uh, she reminds me a lot of Books of Blood era Clive Barker. So if you're really into Clive Barker when he is arguably at his best, uh, Haley's story will definitely appeal to you. It, it explores those liminal spaces where you're not quite sure what you're seeing, 
Um, and uh, what happens when you stare too closely at the cracks in reality? Yeah. I remember Edgar Allan Poe's Hop Frog in high school being the first time, the first story I read, now I'm going to test my memory, but that made me feel deep, deep empathy in the face of cruelty towards someone who had been marginalized. So it's a room full of, you know, very elite people sort of tormenting and torturing someone who is not like them and the revenge aspect of that as well. Can horror teach us to be kinder? I think so. I think it. I think it's an exercise in extreme empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Joe Hill was the one who originally said that, um, so I'm paraphrasing. But I think when we witness sort of vicariously um, characters in dire situations, it brings something out of us that wants to reach out to them. We're afraid because we care. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of exercise, that emotional and intellectual exercise is very, very valuable in, uh, in our daily lives, especially in the world that we live in where we're increasingly isolated and kind of told the things that we, that we want to hear or that, that our beliefs are, are reinforced on our social media channels. It's nice to be confronted with uh, voices that we may not hear, but still to be able to connect uh, with them in ways that we don't expect. For people listening who are taking the opposite track and saying, oh, Lori, you must not have read much horror. This is not about empathy and, um, you know, suspense. This is this can be graphic. This can be violent. Um, this can be unsettling and disturbing. And maybe it can go too far. What would your response be? That's an interesting question because our first single author book is, is called They Were Here Before Us by an author by the name of Eric LaRocca. And he writes some extremely um, vivid, visceral horror. Um, but he does it with an underpinning of emotional understanding that um, isn't for everybody. But I think if you go in with an open mind, you can find, you can find the, the, the peace and empathy amidst the horror. Um, the other thing that I would say is if you read something and it makes you uncomfortable, that means it's working. Uh, I, I truly believe that. I, I think especially now um, when a, a lot of times we're, we're in a lot of places in America, we're being told what we can and can't read and what books can be in libraries. I think discomfort is a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I, I would just urge listeners to get out of their comfort zone, whether that's in horror or whether that's in topics that they, that other topics that make them uncomfortable. But I think discomfort when you're experiencing art or literature of any kind is, is soul building. Hmm. What's next for Bad Hand Books? We are about to, uh, just next week, we're going to launch a dark crime novella by an author by the name of Laird Barron. It's the latest in his Isaiah Coleridge series. Uh, there's a trilogy of, of novels, and he's bringing the character to Bad Hand Books in a novella called The Wind Began to Howl. So we're really excited about that. Uh, there's been a wonderful um, reception for that one in its pre-order phases. Uh, and then we have a collection called uh, The Inconsolables by Michael Wehunt, um, who is uh, making a splash in the weird fiction uh, genre. Um, and uh, so we're in the final stages of putting that together. But then uh, your listeners might be interested to know that Zoya Stage, who has a story in Hidden Horrors, 
is uh, publishing a book for younger readers with bad hand books in time for the holiday season. It's called My Under Slumber Bumblebeast. And it's about <laughs> a little girl named Prue who finds these creatures under her bed and then what happens next. And it's going to be fully illustrated, um, dozens and dozens of illustrations. And so that's going to be kind of a fun piece. Are you putting South Dakota on the map for this genre? I sure hope so. That's, that's the idea. We're, we're after hearts and minds, and <laughs> I don't hate our chances. <laughs> All right. Doug Morano, thank you so much for stopping by. We hope this is the first conversation of many. Thank you very much. The Hideous Book of Hidden Horrors is available now. What can happen at a local hardware store? A lot, apparently. Ten Square Blocks is a new book from Scurf P. Press. Its author is South Dakota State University's distinguished professor, Dr. W. Carter Johnson. Ten Square Blocks offers ten insider stories from a Sioux Falls hardware store. And the author is with me now from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. Carter, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Laurie. We have met at uh, the South Dakota Festival of Books before and chatted, but I think this is the first time you've been on the show, unless, you know, the pandemic messed with my memory. So <laughs> I apologize. No, this is this is the okay. first time, I, I believe. We, we did meet back at the festival, though. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. This is a book about a hardware store, your family hardware store, but it begins in hospice as um, some brothers and sisters are sitting around telling stories. Tell me a little bit about your idea for this book and the universality of siblings saying, do you remember when? Well, they all were uh, members of the staff <laughs> at, uh, at Johnson Hardware, whether they wanted to be or not. So four of us uh, were there for as long as 20 years, and we experienced a lot in those 20 years, and a lot of it was... Uh, hilarious, and a lot of it was serious, and some of it was dangerous. Uh, but those stories became bedtime stories. I mean, when we got older and had kids, we would tell the Johnson Hardware stories to the kids, and they loved those stories. And so when my dad was uh, in his deathbed, and we were around him, and it's a, it's a difficult time, of course, and what do you, what do you say? He was uh, incoherent. And we started to talk about the old days, and we started talking about the stories. And so one story after another after another, and we tried to to top each other. And at one point, there were some funny ones, and the nurse came in and said, uh, you guys better be quiet, you're making too much noise. <laughs> so uh, these stories were the basis for the book. This weird Johnson family in their grief is uh, turning up the volume on laughter, which sounds like a pretty good thing to do. Tell us about Johnson Hardware, because for some people, I mean, there aren't hardware stores like this anymore. No, the independent hardware stores are mostly all gone. Um, but back in the day, everyone went to the hardware store. No matter who you were, you had to buy light bulbs or faucet washers or something, so we met just about everybody. But the store started uh, in the 1920s by my grandparents, and then they, uh, they uh, continued to, to open the store until the 1930s when my grandfather was killed, and my grandmother ran uh, the, 
the uh, hardware store, and she was there's a, a bit in the book about uh, what the editor uh, of the uh, Argus Leader said about a woman running a hardware store. Uh, but then uh, after World War II, my dad came back uh, from military in, in Germany and England and took over the store. And so then it, it uh, was in business, uh, and the next 10 to 20 years were probably the best business it had up until 1970 when he decided to go full-time into the, the military again. Yeah. I feel like we should make time for a fish story. Tell us about the catfish. It's an amazing story. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if you told somebody that uh, a a teenager caught a 87-pound catfish in a little pond at uh, Westington Springs, they'd say, "Yeah, sure." (laughs) Uh, So, so, but it is true, and the uh, the the kid was on the on the uh, uh, the bank fighting this big fish, and the whole town came down to see what was going on, and the fish would pull the line out, and he'd pull it back, and I don't know how many hours it took. But they finally got it uh, uh, on shore, 87-pound catfish. And uh, we had a, a, a store contest back in that day. It was very popular. And so they loaded that catfish up in the car, maybe in the truck, and uh, <laughs> took it to Johnson Hardware. And we waited, entered it, entered it. And, of course, it was the biggest fish of the year. And they won, their family won a trip to northern Minnesota to a real lake uh, to go fishing. <laughs> And this is an opportunity missed in some ways because everybody wants to see the fish and um, should really charge admission. But that <laughs> tells a little bit about the lines for people who wanted to see the fish. It was, uh, yeah, there's a picture in the book that shows how many people had lined up on the front of the store to, to walk through the store. We had put the fish in a, in a uh, open freezer uh, with the door up and uh, they would all walk by, and they would, I don't know, 5,000 maybe uh, people walked by to see that fish, and they all sort of dressed up and like they were going to church. <laughs> and some people said, well, you know, it does look a little bit like a a, a, a session of going through and looking at the dead person <laughs> in, the, in, in the casket. Paying and their so respects. I said, well, it, it does look <laughs> like that, giving their respects and so on. So it was... Uh, uh, quite an quite an event, and the fish uh, attracted a lot of. And, and if you re- remember the book, uh, my dad always kicked himself that he didn't forecast that himself, yeah. and that he didn't prepare his uh, objects for sale. That people, when they walked through, they saw something they couldn't resist, and that he could have actually made some money on the <laughs> fish. But it turned out that he he didn't. And he said, "Well, the next time somebody brings in an 87-pound fish, I'm going to be ready." <laughs> Tell me what um, growing up in the hardware store meant for you as a college professor in your education. Like, what are some of the lessons that you took away from that? We just have like a minute left. So maybe one key takeaway from your time as an adolescent that you still carry today. Uh, I think um, uh, troubleshooting is number one. People yeah. came in with something that was broken. Their motor wouldn't run. Their fish's, fish line is or fishing reel is broken. And so we had to figure out how to fix it for them. And so what do scientists do? Well, they pose hypotheses, and then they test them. And that's what we did. We said, if your engine doesn't work, do you have gas? Uh, Do you have electricity? Uh, Is the the gas valve open? Uh, How do we we, uh, figure out, solve your problem? And so uh, that experience, I think, 
dovetails perfectly into my science career. Yeah. Um, We'll have to have you back on to talk about your wonderful South Dakota ecology book. But this book we've been talking about today is called Ten Square Blocks by W. Carter Johnson. It's out now from Scurf P. Press. Dr. Johnson, uh, professor emeritus of ecology at South Dakota State University and uh, a great storyteller in this book as well. Thank you so much for being here. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for having me. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On tomorrow's In the Moment, we have U.S. Senator Mike Rounds scheduled. We're going to continue our series of conversations about immigration and Title 42 ending this week on the U.S. southern border. Also with us, Kevin Wooster is joining us. He's going to take a stroll through history on the trail of governors in Pier. That's all coming up on the next In the Moment. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.